You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. One of the gifts of being the youngest of three boys is that I got to watch my two older brothers make all the mistakes and was able to learn from them. I got to see what made my mom and dad happy and what did not make them happy. I got to see what expectations they had for my brothers and was able to grow up watching them fulfill those expectations and knowing I could be a little bit ahead of the curve if I would do those things right without being told. Now, whether I learned from them, that is another story, but the opportunity was there at least for me to learn from them. Exodus chapter 32 is the older sibling that we can learn from as we think about our relationship with God. The story of Exodus 32 is mentioned throughout the Bible. In fact, if you turn in your Bible, and I'll have it on the screen here, but to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul speaks about the story in Exodus chapter 32 when he's talking to the Corinthians about their overconfidence in their freedom in Christ. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, these things took place as examples, the older sibling, for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, and, and I want you to remember this phrase because we're going to hear it. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. Then in verse 10, 11, it says this, now these things, we're going to figure out what these things are in Exodus chapter 32, happened to them, and he uses the word example again, but then he said, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. This word instruction is not the idea of I am instructing you today or teaching you today. It's the idea of a, of a warning. It's counsel given to persuade the person to change the, their behavior in light of the coming judgment. So Paul looked at this story in Exodus chapter 32 and said, it's an example. It's an instruction for you. It's so that you don't desire evil as they did. He was saying to us, this is the older sibling. This is the person that you should look at and say, here's what you can learn from this story. Stephen is in Acts chapter seven being put on trial because they believe that he is blaspheming God and Moses. And so in Acts chapter seven, Stephen begins to defend his case. And one of the stories that he talks about is he's defending his case that he's not blaspheming God or Moses is this story. Look at it in Exodus chapter seven and verse 38. Stephen says, this is one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him. This is to Moses at Mount Sinai. We know all this. We've been studying it. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. That's the 10 commandments. In verse 39, 
our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and, and listen to this phrase, in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Then he goes on in verse 40 and 41, saying to Aaron, and again, listen intently because we're gonna hear these again. Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So Stephen brings up this story as he's defending himself against the blast, the, them, him being accused of blaspheming God and Moses. And then the psalmist in Psalms 106, verses 19 through 20, brings up this story when he's talking to the people about the faithful, steadfast, faithful love of the Lord and how he is faithful to us even when we are not faithful to him, even when we rebel against him. And so here's how the psalmist puts it in Psalms 106, 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Verse 22, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. We've seen all this. Therefore, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. What is it about this story that caused Paul and Stephen and the psalmist to bring it up as an example as a warning and as a reminder for us today. So turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 32 so we can see what we can learn from this older sibling story that we find today. Father, as we turn to Exodus chapter 32 and we see this story that many Jewish people believe to be the most disgraceful story in all of their history. I pray that we would come to it today with humble hearts and that Lord you would expose even in our own hearts where we have wandered from you, where we have turned back to Egypt when you have set us free from Egypt. And so I pray today that you would move in a powerful way in our midst, in Jesus' name, amen. We have to go back to Exodus chapter 24 in order to remember the context of where we are at. So Exodus chapter 24 and verse 18 says that Moses entered the cloud and he went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So obviously Exodus chapter 24 in Exodus chapter 32, there's a few chapters between there. But I want you to remember, this is the context of where we're at. Moses is up on the mountain, and what Moses has chosen to do in the writing of the book of Exodus is to throw in some details that he was getting on the mountain. So that's why we've talked through the tabernacle. That's why we talk through the high priest garments. And now we're coming back 
to the mountain and what's going on at the base of the mountain. So I want you to pull out your Bibles and follow along. I'm going to read several scriptures today and give context and commentary as we're reading through it today. So you'll need your Bible out. You'll need it on your phone as, as we work through it today. So the first thing that we're going to see in chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, is we're going to see the golden calf moment. Here's how it begins in chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. He was the one in charge and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So the people get impatient with Moses on the mountain. They don't know that Moses is only going to be up there 40 days and 40 nights. And so I don't know if this is like on the 30th day or the 35th day, right? But they begin to get impatient because Moses is up on the mountain. They're wondering what's going on up there. And they're like, well, maybe he's not coming back down. And so we need a God who's going to lead us and direct us as we move forward to the land of promise. So Aaron steps in in verse 2 and says, Then take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Verse 3, So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, where did they get the gold? Egypt, right? Remember? We talked about this a few weeks ago when God comes and says, hey, I want you to give an offering to build the tabernacle. Where did they get all this stuff from Egypt? That when they were leaving, God gave them all that they needed. And now they're taking what God has given them, a good gift, and they're turning it into an idol to worship. Our heart should be breaking for them that they would say, this is the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. But you can tell that in Aaron's heart, there's a sense of tension here because look at verse five. When Aaron saw this, this golden calf that, he had, that they had formed or he had formed, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. When you see that term Lord, is, in my Bible, it's all in caps. So we've been talking about gods, plural, right? Small g gods. Now Aaron is saying, hey, tomorrow we're going to have a feast. They've already done this with the true and living God. And so what Aaron is trying to do with this Yahweh term here is he's trying to compromise. He's trying to say, listen, I understand this is awkward. Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights. I know there's some tension here. And so let's make this calf, but let's also keep Yahweh a part of this equation, right? He's compromising in this moment and saying, we're going to do a lot of the religious things that we did with Yahweh. So verse six, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Again, trying to combine the true worship of Yahweh with this worship of a false God. They are compromising. They are sinning 
against God. They're mixing the worship of God with the worship of false idols. They're trying to have the best of both worlds. They're trying to say, we want to keep following the Lord, but we also remember in Egypt, there were these cows that they would put up and they were gods of strength and power. And so we want to have that as a direction since Moses is not down here leading us. We want to mix the worship of the true God with the worship of the false God. What commandments are they breaking in this moment? Remember, because he's already given them the commandments, hasn't he? In Exodus chapter 20, he reveals them to them. They're, They're breaking the first and the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Number one. Number two, thou shalt not make any graven images. In this moment, they're trying to, to make a God of their own making and they sin against God. But then look at the end of verse six. It says, and the people sat down, we heard this already, to eat and drink and rose to play. Now, this was a covenant ceremony that they were doing. Because remember, part of the covenant ceremony was you would have sacrifice and then you would have a meal. So again, they're mixing it. But what's interesting about this response is that after they had this ceremony, they rose to play. This rose to play is not like, hey, we went and had a little after church picnic at the park. This is sexual in its overtones. And for me to talk about it in a public setting would be embarrassing of what the word play meant there. So basically they worship this false God and then they just indulge in their own desires. Whatever feels good, let's do it. And that's what's going on in this moment as God is daily providing for their needs. Every day they're waking up, there's still manna on the ground. Every night as they get ready to go to bed, there's still quail that he's providing for them. All that God has provided, they are just saying, hey, we need a new God in this moment. Yeah, we sort of want you too, right? But this is our new God that's gonna lead us into the land. Then you come to chapter 32, verses seven through 14, and you find Moses's intercession. So the Lord comes to Moses and says, go down for your, your people. And interesting, listen to the Lord's terms. Go down for your people. These aren't his people anymore. These are Moses' people. Whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt and have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so God comes to Moses as they're talking on the mountain and says, here's what's going on at the bottom of the mountain. These, your people, I love that he does that to Moses. These are your people that you brought out. Every parent does that, right? These are Ruth's kids. When they're bad, when they're good, they're my kids. That's the same thing that goes on in our, our homes, right? The Lord is saying, these are your people, Moses, who, who are going this, this direction. Then in verse nine, the Lord continues. And he says to Moses, I have seen this people And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. They're stubborn in their sin. Now, therefore, let me alone 
Who's he talking to? Moses. He says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation. In this moment, in verse 10, we see the grace of God. Because look at what the Lord says to Moses. Now, therefore, let me alone. Why would he say to Moses, let me alone? He's God, right? He can do whatever he wants. So he sees what the people are doing. Moses has no idea what's going on down there. He sees it. And because he's God, he could have just said, all right, I'm done with them. I'm going to wipe them out. But he doesn't. What does he say? Moses, let me alone so that I can, I can give them the wrath of God that they rightly deserve. This is the grace of God in this moment. He is wanting us to view the people through Moses, the mediator. He's wanting us to view the people through Moses being their mediator. That's why he says, now let me alone, Moses, so that I can, I can pour out my wrath on them. But look at how Moses responds and he intercedes on behalf of the people. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you, now Moses put him back on him, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with an evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servant to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offering, offspring and they shall inherit it forever. I love that Moses interests seeds on behalf of the people. He reminds God of who, what his character is and who he is, right? That he has made promises that why would he want to take the people out to the land and then consume them? Like, what is that going to say to the Egyptians and to their false gods? Like, this is what he wanted to do, get them out of Egypt so that he can kill them all. Moses is, is interceding. He's praying on behalf of the people. And then in verse 14, 14, it says, and the Lord relented. Some of your Bibles will say, and the Lord repented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now for some, this verse is a catch, right? Because we know the character of the Lord is that he doesn't change. But in this moment, Moses records for us that the Lord relented or he repented of this disaster or, or, or getting rid of the people. So what is going on in this moment? What is God doing? Well, I would say to you that God was not changing his plan, but he was carrying out his plan through Moses. That's why he said in verse 10, let me alone, Moses. It is all a part of God's plan. So the fact that he relented was pointing back to Moses as the intercessor. This was not some God being out of control and Moses sort of calming God down so that he doesn't do anything he's going to regret. No, this is all a part of God's plan. Amen. And sometimes when we view God, we have to be careful to always view God through a skeptical lens. 
Like everything that God does is sort of on trial. No, he is the creator of the universe. He is the creator of us. And in some ways, he can do what he wants to do. He's God. Our responsibility should not be to be skeptical of him, but to trust his heart as God. And I think in this moment, we can take this text and we can say, well, look, God repented. God changed his mind. Well, I think this was all a part of God's plan. And it's pointing us to Moses, which eventually is going to point us to someone greater who's going to intercede for us by the name of Jesus. Then you come to Exodus chapter 32 and verse 15. Moses comes down from the mountain. I'm not going to read it through this. I'll come to verse 19 and start reading. So he comes off the mountain, hooks up with Joshua about halfway down the mountain and him and Joshua come into the camp. There's a lot of noise going on. And in verse 19, it says, and as soon as he came near to the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. So this is the partying that's going on. And Moses got angry and it burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. So as Moses comes down, he's got these two tablets that God has written on, written on, right? That God has written on and he takes these two command, these two tablets and he throws them on the ground and, and breaks them. Is this Moses losing his temper? No. Actually, it's not Moses losing his temper. This is Moses displaying for the people what they have done with the commandments of God. This is a visual representation. As he throws them down, it's not that Moses has lost control. It's that Moses is wanting a visual of, hey, everybody, as you see me come down with these two tablets and I'm throwing them down to breaking it, this is what you have done to the commandments of God. You have broken the law. Remember what Jesus did when he went into the temple and he saw that his temple had become a place where they were, they were exchanging money and it had become about commerce? What did he do? The Bible says he got angry and he flipped tables over, right? That was a visual illustration of, to them of, hey, this is not what my house was meant to be. And the same thing is happening in, the Mo- in this moment as the people see Moses throw down the tablets. He is saying, you have broken the commandments of God. Verse 20, and he took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and he ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and he made the people of Israel drink it. Now it's like, this is Moses losing control, right? Like he's burnt the, the, the he's, he's, he's taken the calf and he's melted it down and he's making the people drink it. He is serving them a decaf latte, if we could say it that way. Come on, man. You got to help me out. I heard a pastor say that this week in a message I was listening to about this. And I thought, and he just randomly did it. He was like, that wasn't even in my notes. This was in my notes and it went a lot better for him. You know what I'm saying? Get it decaf. So C-A-L-F versus, you get it? Hudson, do you get that? No, he's like, I don't do decaf lattes. All right, sorry. Uh, So this is a visual illustration. Because here's the idea. What does your body do after it digests food and water? It turns to waste. Moses is illustrating to the people the worth of their idol. That it is good for nothing. It is waste. And these idols are to be destroyed and treated like waste that comes out of our bodies. These are two pretty good visual 
illustrations of what Moses is leading the people toward. We've broken the commandments and now I want you to drink the idol as a means to know it's just waste, it's nothing. Then verses 21 through 24, we come to Aaron. Aaron is the guy that was supposed to be in charge. And in 21, it says, and Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? that you have brought such a great sin upon them. Like, how did they convince you to do this? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. Again, you know, you know these people, Moses. They're not really good people. For they said to me, make us gods who should go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, this is Aaron, let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Isn't that, what a good excuse. I mean, you couldn't have come up with something different, Aaron. You know what I'm saying? Like you hadn't thought through this a little bit more that this was how Moses, you saw him throw down the tablets, you saw him drink the water. And now the only thing you can come up with is like, boom, this calf was just there when I threw the gold in the water. So Aaron uses excuses with Moses. Then in verses 25 through 29, you have the Levites intervention. It says, and when Moses saw the people had broken loose, basically the idea is that there was anarchy in the land. Everybody was doing, judges would say it this way, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. So there's just anarchy going on. And Moses stood at the gate of the camp. So he stands in front of all the people and says, who is on the Lord's side? In verse 26, come to me. So in this moment, Moses draws the line in the sand and says, all right, you've got to choose who you're going to serve today. Are you going to serve this golden calf? Or are you going to serve the true and living God, Yahweh? And the Bible says that in this moment, the Levites come and follow Moses. They say, we're gonna serve the Lord. And so because they choose to serve the Lord, God gives them uh, a command. And he says, I want you to get a sword and I want you to go throughout the land and I want you to kill anybody who's gonna continue to worship this false God. The Bible says as they go through the land that they kill about 3,000 men on that day. Now, just to give us perspective, 3,000 men is about two, or is about 0.05% of the male population in that day. So when we hear 3,000 people, we think, man, that's like half of the people, right? 3,000 people in this moment was only 0.05% of the male population. But what they're doing is he's wanting to clean out those who were not willing to follow the true Yahweh God. So these were more than likely leaders of different tribes or or leaders who had said, you know what? We're not gonna turn from our idols. We like living in our sin. We like the idol that we have made. And at this moment, God cleans house. Then in verses 30 through 35, Moses goes back and begins to intercede on behalf of the people again. Look at verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps, I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. 
They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, and listen to the heart of Moses, please blot me out of your book that you have written. He says, if you're not gonna forgive the people, then don't even keep my name in the book of life. We know this to be that from the book of Revelation or the book of life, it's called in Psalms. That this, he's saying, if if you're not gonna forgive the people, then I'm willing to stand between them and say, why don't you just take my name out as well? Verse 34, but now go, or, or verse 33 The Lord says to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So there is judgment still to come. But verse 34, we see the grace and mercy of God. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel, God could have said, I'm not gonna give you any direction now. Go live in your own sin. But instead, he still provides grace and mercy by saying, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit upon their sin. And then in verse 35, we see God's discipline. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The Bible says that God disciplines those he loves. So as being followers of God's people, even though Moses was interceding on their behalf, God still had to do what was right and discipline his people to return their hearts to him. What an older brother story to learn from, huh? This story is an example, a warning and a reminder for us today. It is an example to us of the deceitfulness of sin. You see, we scratch our heads and say, who could have experienced what they did and turn their back on God? We laugh at Aaron when he said to Moses, the calf just formed out of the gold. We read this story and think to ourselves, who would be so stupid? The reality is you and I would be so stupid. How many times do we fall to the deceitfulness of sin? How many times have we exchanged the glory of God for a thing made with human hands? How many times have we grown impatient with God and took matters into our own hands? How many times have we forgot God and did what we wanted to do? How many times have we given God the middle finger with our idol of choice? You see in Hebrews chapter three, verse 13, it says, but I exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. May God break our church's hearts for the idols we worship and the hardening of our hearts through the deceitfulness of sin. We have bought into the lie of comfort and convenience and popularity and sex and that God wants us to be happy and education and power and fame and money and programs. Anything in our church's life and in our own lives as individuals that we put in the place of God or we put above God as an idol and we've been deceived to believe that those things can bring us satisfaction, that those things can bring us direction in our life and this story is an example of the deception of sin. 
It is a warning to us also, though, of the heart of sin. Stephen says it in Acts chapter 7, they turned back to Egypt in their hearts. Paul says in 1 Corinthians we, that, that we would learn from this so as not to desire evil. Where do desires come from? They come from our heart. You see, before they had the golden calf moment, they had went back to Egypt in their heart. You can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people, right? So they had went there in their hearts before the golden calf magically appeared out of the fire. They had already been there. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts are deceptive. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus, when he's talking about the law, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look on a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery already. Jesus says, you're not to be angry. That's what you've heard. But I say, when you... When you have anger in your heart towards someone, you've already committed murder, right? Because you're angry in your heart. Hebrews 3 in verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We must see that sin comes from our heart. We don't sin because someone made us do it. We don't sin because God isn't good. We sin because our hearts are sinful and because we get impatient with God and we need someone to give us a new heart. See, the story of Exodus 32 doesn't leave us to despair in our sins, but it leads us to hope that a greater mediator than Moses has come And that is the last thing that I would want to say to you. It is a reminder of the substitute for sin. Moses interceded on behalf of the people. And in a way, Moses only could hold off the inevitable of God's judgment of sin on sin. And so there had to be someone better than Moses to come. And there was someone better who would come, who would stand in the gap for us. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul says, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became our substitute for sin. This is the great news of the gospel. Listen to Romans chapter five and verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law just came to expose what was already in our heart. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Our substitute has come for our sin. This is the good news of the gospel. When we look at our guilt and shame because of our sin, we don't have to live there because God's grace abounds even more in this moment. We don't have to continue in sin anymore because of Jesus. Sin has no dominion over us. We are not under the law anymore. We are under grace. Jesus 
is our substitute. We can learn from our older sibling of Exodus chapter 32, from the deceitfulness of sin to the heart of sin, to thanks be to God for the substitute for our sin. So to my non-Christian friends in the room today, I would invite you to turn from the idols of this world that will never satisfy you and come and serve the true and living God. To members of Antioch, to our family and friends, I would say this, I would invite you to turn from the idols that you have fallen back into. Remember, you've left Egypt. You don't belong there anymore. And I would invite you to return to the father who is sitting on the porch, watching for you to come home and will run and embrace you when you return to him. Jesus, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. And so as we feel the weight of sin in our lives today, I pray that that weight would push us to you. And that as we feel the weight of sin, that your grace would abound more and more in our lives. And so the friend in the room today watching online that is not a follower of you, that serves idols that will never satisfy them, I pray today that they would turn from their sin, from their idol and turn to you and follow and serve the true and living God. And for those of us in the room and watching online today that, that claim to be followers of you, but we've returned back to Egypt, we've went back to our former life, May we too today turn from our sin and may we return to you and may we see in our mind's eye that when we turn, when we draw near to you, the Bible says, you will draw near to us. And so I can just picture Luke 15, the father running towards his son who's returning home. And I pray today, Lord, that our church would see you running towards us to embrace us and to bring us back. You're such a good and faithful father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to antiochbbc.org. That's antiochbbc.org. God's best to you.